Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. One, two, three, cuatro. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we'll hear from guests like Tamar Afek and Jimmy Jam about songs they'd want to take to the desert island. We'll also have a discussion about the Astro World tragedy and concert safety with Sound Opinions collaborator and Rolling Stone senior writer Althea Legaspi. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, a review of the new Beatles docuseries, Get Back. That's a little bit of the song Get Back from the docuseries Get Back, The Beatles Get Back, Peter Jackson's epic on uh, The Beatles in the Studio. What they did in January of 1969, we basically get every minute of that uh, existence. I think there's a few bathroom breaks that Jackson, uh, Jackson the Lord of the Lord of the Rings, left out. Well, this guy doesn't do small things. Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogies were both epic series. Then he did the World War I movie, They Shall Not Grow Old in which he uh, used that CGI technique, which he is bringing back here. So, of course, everybody knows uh, the Beatles were documented in a movie called Let It Be back in 1970, after they'd broken up, essentially. Yeah. Michael Lindsay Hogg uh, created this um, 80-minute documentary out of 57 hours of footage. I mean, he was basically there the entire time they were recording this album and planning a concert, which ended up being on the rooftop of Apple Records mm-hmm. in London. Uh, as kind of the finishing moment of that film. And it has generally been uh, regarded as sort of a downer film. Well, Peter Jackson's uh, role here was apparently to, to sort of redeem that, say here's what actually happened in a broader context. It's a documentary of the documentary, as he said. There is a number of moments here and where you do get this sense of stuff being created. And you watched that moment, where Get Back, the song, doesn't exist, and Paul McCartney brings it into an existence over about a minute and a half, two and a half minutes of film time, Mm -hmm. while George Harrison and Ringo Starr are sort of looking on going, oh, okay, there's something happening there. Yeah, it's good. It's, you know, musically a night's great. Creating out of thin air. Greg, I think overall you are uh, far more enthusiastic about the film than I am, because I think uh, that's not nearly as good as seeing Sympathy for the Devil come together in the Godard film, for example, of the Rolling Stones. Well, you get a com- more complete picture. You get a more, well, complete. Sympathy. Complete to the point of, yeah. oh my God, did I mention? Nearly eight hours, yeah. okay? Let's get a few things straight up top. Let It Be is one of the worst albums in the Beatles canon. Think for a minute, Beatles fans, as you begin to have your blood pressure shoot through the roof, what it would be like if we had a film of the making of Rubber Soul, Revolver, Mm. or Abbey Road, right? 
man. That be- All right, these things don't exist. It's a shame. Jackson worked with what he had, which was not a positive period in the Beatles' uh, career. I think that the original documentary did exaggerate some of the conflict. We see John and Paul essentially really trying to be diplomatic around each other mm. although they're clearly reaching the end of their long and winding road you know and the girlfriends there of course you know yoko being vilified famously paul had said it's going to be comical in 50 years uh to hear the Beatles broke up because Yoko sat on an ant. Right. No, no. I mean, this Even makes... then, they knew that uh, that was a myth. Then it was a vile, mm-hmm. uh, xenophobic, pernicious, xenophobic, sex. Yeah, you <laughs> name it. Number two, I would say, God, you know, the Beatles marketing machine yeah. selling us the same stuff now for half a century <laughs> since this ceased to be agreed. But God bless you, Beatles fans. I know you're completists, but. You know, wow, if you just took eight hours and jumped around on the streaming service of your choice and tried to discover some new music, Mm. like, be here now. That was, (laughs) as George would have said at the height of his spiritual phase, while they're ignoring great songs he's trying to put into the band, you know, be here now. All points well made, but there were moments, and I do feel like it did serve a role in that it did sort of recontextualize what happened in that studio because that is you know famously thought of as this it was the beginning of the end right yeah yeah and you look at what they created in these three weeks i mean they basically made the let it be album most of the songs for abbey road yeah were formulated here they started coming beginning to come together abbey road a great album not to mention a a couple of singles uh, you know uh, don't let me down one of lennon's best songs ends up as a b-side Old Brown Shoe, a very underrated George Harrison rocker, Mm. was created during these sessions, too. That's another B-side. These guys were on a roll here, songwriting-wise. George Harrison is like the puppy dog that's been, you know, beaten a million times, and he's in the corner, and he eventually quits the band, and they bring him back. Lennon, of all people, is the one that, let's go to George and talk, you know, let's talk him back into the band. George comes back, and, you know, he feels welcomed by his pals, but he's not going to show Ringo the same condescension that John and Paul show him. Right. So when, you know, Ringo puts out his little octopus's garden ditty <laughs> and George jumps right in to help the guy. Here's a few uh, chords and yes, here's sir. what we could do with the middle eight. And, yeah. you know, he's being a helpful guy. And you go, that's how he wants John and Paul to, to treat, treat him. him. And yeah. they never did. And the other brilliant thing about George, he brings Billy Preston into the sessions. Yes. Which right away, everything falls into place once Billy Preston is in the room. They're all in their best behavior. Billy Preston adds a lot to that record. Be down. You give us a lift, Bill. We've been doing this for days now. Weeks. Just choking. That was our turn. Hopefully we didn't go too long for the too long uh, Get Back series. Also, some of you will think it's just right and want more. Coming soon, no doubt, are the outtakes from Get Back. There the is more. From, there is more. more yeah. 60 hours of footage, you know. Do you have opinions on that Peter Jackson multi-part Beatles docuseries? If you've seen it, let us know what you think. Uh, leave us a voice message at soundopinions.org. Greg, we have to turn now to a very serious topic. We didn't want to jump on this news story right away. We wanted to bring context and perspective. And also our contributor, Althea Legaspi at Rolling Stone, into a conversation about the horrifying events at Astro World in Houston and about concert safety in general. 
You know, as many of you know, Astroworld was to be held on November 5th and 6th, but day two was canceled after a series of extremely unfortunate and tragic events. Let's go deeper into this with Althea. Hi, Althea. Hi, Jim. How are you? Yeah, you know, we're all still reeling from this news of a couple of weeks ago. Ten dead now uh, from Astroworld, a festival headlined by, started by Travis Scott in Houston. Um, Can you take us through the events of what happened that uh, sad, tragic night and what's been happening since? So, yeah. So, as you mentioned, Astroworld, this was his third festival. It was on November 5th. The concert started, and at about 9 p.m., there was a massive surge happening at the concert. Um, And apparently there was a mass casualty called at it, but it continued, the concert continued for another 40 minutes. 40 minutes as people were dying and being seriously injured. 50,000 people at this festival. Before we get into more about what happened uh, that night at Astroworld, named for a favorite amusement park that rapper Travis Scott frequented as a child, right? Um, Tell us who Travis Scott is and what his reputation is. So he's been around for about a decade in terms of popularity, uh, and he's a rapper who is known for his rowdy concerts, and he has allegedly encouraged people to, you know, obviously mosh um, and encouraged people to even jump off balconies, allegedly. In 2015, he was charged and pleaded guilty for reckless conduct after encouraging fans to climb over the security barricades at Lollapalooza. I, th- I don't know if you guys recall that. We were, yeah, I think, oh, all yeah. there. Um, and then in 2018, he was charged and pled guilty for disorderly conduct after allegedly inciting a riot at a 2017 show in Arkansas. So the the, the concerts are known for their like enthusiasm and energy, um, but then also for, again, allegedly some behaviors that can make it a little more dangerous. I want to point out this is not uh, unique to hip hop by any means. In fact, moshing, you know, originates in the punk rock underground of the 80s and, you know, kind of goes mainstream moshing and crowd surfing. You used to call it slam dancing in the early days uh, in the alternative era, right? I mean, whether it's a band like Hole, whether it's a band like Nine Inch Nails, uh, in the death metal world, right, we see this hyperactive behavior, uh, which may look violent to outsiders, but there's generally a code. You know, if somebody falls and can't get up, somebody's glasses are knocked off, people help them. This is something concert uh, professionals have been dealing with now for decades. Something went wrong here. I will add, Travis Scott was the subject of a great Netflix documentary that showed both the energy, excitement, and harrowing danger of some of his festivals. This should have been a surprise to no one, uh, uh, but it seems to have been, Althea, no? Yeah, and I mean, I think that it's interesting because one of the things that came out during um, the numerous press conferences, specifically to this concert at um, at the festival, I should say, in Houston, is they don't have capacity roles outdoors, which is, I think, kind of interesting because, and again, they're in the middle of the investigation right now, so it's not clear. They don't know exactly what happened, but there has been a lot of uh, footage of people who have festival jumped, um, which we've seen when we've gone to festivals as well. It looks like there were quite a few people. Gate crashing. Yeah, the gate crashing. And then just that amount of a surge 
can really change the footprint of what's going on right when everybody's trying to like go to the front. We've all been somewhere where that's been yeah. a situation. And uh, one of the things I want to point out about um, Travis is his popularity is so huge amidst younger people who may have not been, they might not know the whole protocol for mosh pits, correct? You know, we, yes. we mm-hmm. you kind of yes. learn those as you're at shows. And one of the reasons he, I think he's so popular with kids is he's he's got so many corporate sp- partnerships from sneakers to fast food to video games. It, it speaks to a younger crowd. Nothing wrong with that. But again, you know, his, like, new, his new sneaker for Nike uh, was supposed to be released uh, not not long after the festival. It is now put on hold mm. temporarily. Yes. And Apple was a corporate sponsor, a co-sponsor of this festival, and we're doing a major live stream. I heard that there were dozens of Apple executives present. Yeah, I heard that as well. But I think the thing is is that he has such mass appeal. Again, people aren't necessarily like, going back to your point about mosh pits, necessarily might not know that situation. And then again, when there's too many people and not um, the right security measures, this is the kind of thing that could actually happen. Yes. There was a, there was an operations plan filed in advance with the city of Houston. And uh, what struck me in reviewing it uh, when I was slipped a copy in my own reporting was the number of TBDs. The names are redacted in the copy I have about who's responsible for what elements of the concert. And uh, those were there, but they're redacted. But in terms of like riot control plans, that's an actual title in the operations plan. And uh, crowd uh, problems, uh, all of that is like TBD, you know, and it's like, wow, you're inviting 50,000 people to this major event uh, headlined by an artist who has a reputation for rowdiness, and and there's TBDs on the plan that are filed with emergency officials? That kind of leads to when we go into how many uh, lawsuits have popped up from this, yeah, right? What is, the number, what is the number today? It seems to change every day I look. I mean, there, I, I, I can't even count anymore. The One of the, the last victim, at least the 10, right? The last victim was a nine-year-old boy named Ezra Blunt, and their family is suing for $1 million, at least $1 million. Um, And I have, I have, this is subject to change. I have more than 230 lawsuits filed, including a massive one that's a joint uh, lawsuit on behalf of more than 280 victims for $2 billion. Yep. That's the one with, I mean, Scott's not the only one named in these, as, as you know. Well, There's... we have not mentioned the major <laughs> name of this story yet. Uh, Live Nation is the biggest concert promoter in the world. On Friday, November 4th, they released their latest quarterly report. Even given the struggle to return from COVID-19, which shut down all concerts, you know, for a year and a half, Live Nation reported $2.7 billion in revenue for the third quarter of this year, Beating expectations on Wall Street. Uh, this is from uh, National Public Radio. The company attributed its growth to consumers' pent-up demand for concerts, festivals, and other live events that have been squelched by the coronavirus pandemic. I, I read that quarterly report cover to cover, and the word festival is mentioned again and again and again. In recent years, Live Nation has gone across America, coast to coast and internationally, buying up all successful 
festivals in every genre. It does not matter to them. Country, uh, alternative in quotes, whatever Lollapalooza is, they now own Lollapalooza. Astroworld, small hip-hop festivals, electronic music festivals. Um, there is much money to be made in festivals, even given the many acts that take the stages because uh, they continue to be the driving force. Rather than go and see a two or three band bill, uh, concert the concert industry in the last decade has really shifted toward the festival model. Wouldn't you say, Greg? I mean, that's yeah. an accurate representation. For sure. And, and Travis Scott, uh, let's not be, you know, let's not dance around the elephant in the room here. I mean, the guy makes a ton of money for Live Nation. Uh, that uh, Astro World Tour, um, $53 million in 2019 alone. And then you lose a whole year of touring because of COVID. Uh, there's a real hunger to get this guy out there again and play these big, as big of places as he possibly can because he can film. The thing that kills me about this thing, and it, it obviously led to the death of a number of people, was that, as you said, he has a history of inciting the crowd um, it's well known. Live Nation certainly knew it. We saw it happen at Lollapalooza in 2015. I mean, right. they were, they arrested him after that after that performance. Right. You know, inciting a riot. Right? Uh, he's a money maker. Part of the deal is Live Nation certainly knew all this going ahead of time. The Houston uh, police chief said that the number of uh, officers on duty were sufficient to handle a normal concert of this size. A normal concert. A normal concert. Again, I think throwing it back on the uh, at, at the feet of Live Nation, saying, you know, this wasn't a normal concert, essentially, reading between the lines. Uh, and we knew it wasn't going to be a normal concert because of the types of shows that Travis Scott has done in the past. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Althea about festival and concert safety. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking with Sound Opinions contributor and Rolling Stone senior writer Althea Legaspi about the Astroworld tragedy and concert safety. Let's get back into the conversation. Chuck D., who remains a voice of considerable conscience in, uh, in popular music, put out a statement that's gotten a lot of attention. I'm tired of these corporations shucking their most crucial responsibility. I am calling on Michael Rapino and his entire team at Live Nation and a consortium of all the major concert promoters to do the right thing, to step up out of the shadows, to fix these situations. Um, Althea, let's compare our reporting. One of the things I'm getting, uh, it's a relatively small festival promoter that Travis Scott is tightly tied in with, Scoremore Productions, right? You have other uh, big festival promoters like C3, now owned by Live Nation. Uh, they put on Lollapalooza and the Austin City Limits Festival, right? Which draw 100,000 people a day for several days. Scoremore is nowhere near that league. But Live Nation, uh, according to the many people I've interviewed, does not differentiate. We, we buy these festivals. Uh, you started it. You run it. Right. How much control does this major corporation uh, have of the festivals that it, it, it is essentially a marketing company, a ticketing company. It owns Ticketmaster since a merger in 2010 that was incredibly controversial. Anybody remember Pearl Jam? Anybody remember Pearl Jam and REM and, and Aerosmith members testifying on Capitol Hill? One of the last moments, Greg, in my recollection of 
of true bipartisan opposition to a corporate merger. You had on one hand Chuck Schumer, you know, the Democrat from New York opposing yeah. the Ticketmaster and Live Nation merging, and on the other, Orrin Hatch of Utah. Orrin Hatch, I will have you know, is a recording artist who, who, who sings Mormon spirituals <laughs> on record. Um, you know, I've, I've never seen that, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody said the merger of Ticketmaster and Live Nation is a bad idea, and yet it sailed through under the Obama administration. His chief of staff was our former mayor of Chicago, uh, Rahm Emanuel, who sat on the board of, uh, uh, his brother sat on the board, Ari Emanuel, of, of uh, Live Nation. Uh, so this sails through. Live Nation is excellent at marketing, putting up shows for sale and letting people know they're happening. Ticketing, Ticketmaster is usually controversial in the music world because of the egregious service fees, uh, sometimes uh, 50 or $100 added to your ticket to print it out at home, <laughs> right? Um, but that's what they do along with corporate uh, branding. You know, Apple, come on board. Nike, come on board, right? That's what they do. In As far as like manning the barricades of you know, being security at the shows, they don't do that so much. Or am I wrong, Althea? No, and you mentioned Scoremore. It's interesting because they, we, one of our reporters had spoken to some ex-employees and I think even one that was still an employee who talked about some egregious things that they had done in the past and how they were sort of like unprofessional, um, really didn't have things coordinated the way they should. They're named actually in some of those lawsuits as well. Yes. Uh, and what's interesting, too, is one of the most recent lawsuits that just came out is two security guards who were hired yeah. for the event um, are suing everybody <laughs> as well because yeah. they said they were not trained properly at all. They were not. They literally had no proper training beforehand. They just kind of showed up and they were just supposed to sort of know what's happening. One of the things that jumped out at me uh, uh, from that lawsuit, they didn't have walkie talkies. Yeah. They That's couldn't. See, they and, couldn't communicate, and that to me is a central issue. Go back to Altamont, 1969. Remember that bewildered look on Mick Jagger's face as all the violence right. is going down. Right. He doesn't know what's happening. Right. He knows there's something wrong. We can't see it. I mean, if you're ever taking it from the vantage point of the of the performer, there's lights in their face usually. It's a big sea of black out there. You can maybe see a few faces. They're trying to give 100 percent. Right. Yeah. He's putting on a show. The footage of Travis Scott in this Astro World performance is interesting because he's trying to f figure out what's going on. He sees an ambulance back there, can't quite figure out what's going on. Still, nobody's communicating with the most important voice in the whole arena and telling him, "Here's what's happening. You need to stop this right now." Right. I mean, why does it take? Why is he continuing with the concert for thirty minutes while people are dying? Well, we've seen dozens of times, mm -hmm. all of us, you know, in the thousands of concerts collectively that we have been to. Uh, you know, a performer sees uh, somebody passing out. A performer sees somebody with a broken arm, uh, and they say, "Hold on, hold on, give people some space here. Let's take a minute. Let's breathe." You know, I've seen that at death metal shows. I've seen that at Pearl Jam concerts. I've seen that at punk shows. Sure. But, I mean, the thing here is that it's unclear how much he really knew. And that's right. probably mm -hmm. the, the, the gist of the investigation. And also, again, who's responsible. There's just a lot of um, there's a lot of blame going uh, going around and flying in every direction. And well, one well, of the interesting things, some of the witnesses um, who were trying to escape um, the situation had talked about, like, scaling the the camera 
uh, crane. Yeah, the camera platform uh, that was live streaming to Apple. (laughs) Begging them to try to get them to stop. But there was no walkie talkie up there. There was just no communication, it sounds like, between all the different people. So it is entirely possible, as to, to Greg's point, how much can you really know when you're on stage if there's blinding lights? You might know something's going on. There was clearly an ambulance. He did stop the concert at least once. But, you know, to what degree he actually knew things were bad? Like you said, it could have just been, oh, it's a mosh pit situation again, right? Well, Live Nation took a hit corporately. Uh, their stock uh, went down about 5% after these tragic deaths. But it had been up 23%. So it's all relative. Where's the corporate responsibility? What do you two think, my colleagues? I think it's all in the preparation. You know, the communication is not going to happen in the midst of a chaos. You know, you're not going to be able to get a promoter or a performer to stop something that's already out of control. I mean, it's the, the damage has been done. It's too late. It's all about the preparation ahead of time. And that also includes, that's not to, to let Travis Scott off the hook. His management, his team has got to be on board with all of this. To cite one example, the Grateful Dead were a gigantic band in the late 80s. They were attracting these huge crowds. Great gate crashing was going on. There was violence on the level of a Grateful Dead show that as extreme as they'd ever seen. Their preparation before every show was meticulous. Gigantic meetings with city officials, promoters, everybody who could have possibly involved in the show ahead of time, planning it down to the most minute iota. And I'm wondering how much preparation went into this Travis Scott performance. I mean... It's one of many. We knew the track record. I think it all comes down to, to blaming the people who are preparing the show. And that includes a number of people. But the promoters have got to be central to that, don't well, you think? I, I, I think so. I want to hear what Althea thinks. No, I agree. And I really agree with Greg and the idea that the preparation and, and that doesn't mean that any of these people can necessarily escape, including um, Scott. And again, it, it still remains to be clear who how much responsibility everybody has. But Yes, the promoters have everything to do with the planning. Yes, the any any the coordination of security, and to be honest with you, also the coordination with the city because they're the ones exactly. who, who and the and that too. and that to me, um, you know, did they have enough police? Were they really prepared? It, it, those kinds of things. I was talking to a concert professional who says uh, in in many uh, major cities, the fire department, the police department, and emergency services have the actual power to stop a concert in yes. advance uh, if they do not think the planning is adequate. And it's unclear whether the city of Houston uh, had that power or saw the red flags they should have seen in the operations uh, plan. Let, let's broaden it out. The Washington Post had a fantastic piece that said, 32 million people, more than the population of Texas, attend music festivals each year. As we said, festivals have become the dominant moneymaker in the concert industry. But festivals happen in venues or at locales that are not permanently 
built and prepared for uh, crowds of 50,000, right? If you are at a football stadium, uh, if you are at a concert venue, there are exits everywhere. There are uh, facilities for water. There are facilities for food. There are, are adequate bathrooms. You know, as opposed to a field with porta potties and uh, a temporary infrastructure that is built for this one event. So, how safe are festivals? Is a good question that I think should be seriously examined in the wake of of ten dead in Houston and many others injured. I don't know what the solution is, though, guys, and I don't think we're going to come up with like the the easy solution here. But I'm not really sure what beyond. Definitely capacity. I cannot believe they didn't well, have capacity. a capacity. <laughs> capacity they, limits. I yeah. can't believe they didn't have that. Um, when I read that on the Astroworld information, I thought, and when they said that in the press conference, I thought, how can you not have a limit? They're like, when it's outdoors. I'm like, okay, so just because it's outdoors, there's no limit? That's insane. They should because they're sacrificing lives otherwise, right? They need to take it down how many people come and take into consideration if there is going to be gate crashers which there will be then maybe they need to sell less tickets how about but again, that it's much harder to do it's much harder to have a gate crashing at a established venue that's true that's true because there are defined access points you know uh, the perimeter of Lollapalooza is what it's it's more than uh, one and a half miles or two miles from one end of Grand Park to another, and of course there's four sides of it. How, yeah. how do you how, much how do you control access over that? Whereas at the, an amphitheater, um, you know there are five. You know there, how many entry points at Soldier Field? Right. right. You know, there's half a dozen or or twelve. You know, and much and harder only, to. Much yeah. harder to sneak into something like that. You're right. Yeah, and the rest of it's a concrete wall. I mean, yeah. here you've got temporary fencing for miles, you know, around the festival grounds. And that it's, comes down it's very come easily. Down. Came yeah. down easily at Altamont in yeah. 1969. It comes down easily at Lollapalooza mm-hmm. in 2021. You know, I'm looking at U.S. federal and state amusement ride regulations. You know, are we looking at that scenario, Althea, for concerts? I mean, I hate to say that, but by God, you know, you see an incident like this happen. No, Uh, you kind of wonder if there should be some kind of regulation. Yeah, there should be some sort of oversight. Again, I think that there's we're going to see that there were many failures. And I think we've brought up quite a few of them. Right. So there there should be. And I'm not one of those people who's like regulate everything because I, I, you know, I think sometimes that takes it can take some well, fun. We, we, are, we are three cultural critics yeah. and rock music lovers. We are not uh, uh, people uh, sang, sounding the alarm bell. You know, I mean, we, we We're not pearl-clutching about this no, kind of thing at all. Saying. But at the same point, it's like there there should be some oversight in terms of or at least some, some checkpoints along the way. Like you said, there, there was no preparation. The preparation that we're seeing in hindsight looks like it was not to the level it should be, right? So if there's no one checkmarking all that, somewhere along the way we're going to have this. It's it's actually, and I'm sure we all feel this way, I, I'm surprised that we haven't had more of these things kind of happen too. Um, thank goodness that hasn't been the case. I will say when Travis Scott got arrested here, his concert was stopped in about five minutes. So so there there have been times that people have reacted appropriately in a situation that um, is unsafe. I think when you, though, get into a situation where you've got too many people already and they're not going to pull the plug maybe even ahead of time, right? Because it was already, I think it looked like it was already getting kind of dangerous before the concert started. Yeah. You know, Um, 
there needs to be some standards, some standardized things, which I kind of feel like after this, I can't imagine that there won't be some oh, standardization. Don't say that, Althea. You know, it, it's <laughs> after every one of these incidents uh, has happened, and there have been others. Ross Gilda yeah, in Denmark that's true. Uh, during the Pearl Jam concert. And that almost broke up Pearl Jam. Uh, you know, that incident, uh, they, they were so horrified, that band. And when it comes down to it, I hate to say it, when people lose money, people sadly, lose money, yeah. when it yeah. comes down to their cash, that's when people make change. Th- that might be, but I, I also, uh, the, the audiences have to take some blame because audiences uh, get up in arms when there is a tragedy like this, and then they have a 10-minute attention span, and they forget. That's you true. Know? And then it happens again and again and again. If you look at that list, uh, you know, seven dead in Indiana in 2011, nine dead at Roskilde in 2000, the most well-known one perhaps, the Who in Cincinnati, 11 dead in 79. We, 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 there should have never been another one of these incidents after 79 in the Who. Okay, so you're telling me I shouldn't have any hope about this changing. <laughs> Is that what you're going to tell me? <laughs> I'm telling you it's our job as uh, music journalists uh, to, to, keep, uh, uh, to keep this story alive. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I will say, I mean, you're right that maybe the, the, the changes should have been instigated sooner. I do kind of feel like this one has gotten so much scrutiny, like... That maybe, maybe it'll result That maybe something. there's going to be, there's going to have to be some results. All right. A sad and unfolding story. Althea Legaspi, senior writer on the news desk at Rolling Stone. Thanks for uh, helping add to this conversation, Althea. I appreciate you for having me. That wraps up our discussion of Astroworld and festival safety. And now we want to hear from you. What do you think should be done to make sure concerts are safe? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we hear from past guests about the songs they can't live without. They're taking them to the desert island, Greg. Plus, a word from our listeners. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. Over the years, Greg and I have taken countless trips to the desert island, popped a quarter in the jukebox, and played you songs we can't live without. This week, it's our guest's turn. First up is uh, Tamar Afek, who made one of the best albums we heard this year. Let us hear what she's got to bring to the desert island with her. I'm moving between Bitches Brew, Miles Davis, to, to, to one of the Fugazi records, because like Fugazi <laughs> is just my... It's, it's such a big love, you know, I... I keep I keep returning to 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 Fugazi records to see like I keep you know every time I'm like I just hope I'm not going to be disappointed and I'm going to be excited like the first time and then I'm like <laughs> excited at the first yeah. time and I'm like I think those two records are a pretty good uh, uh, the two poles of your aesthetic. Um, interesting, yeah. I mean, I feel you know to to sum up uh, the 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 album, I think my album is a love letter to rock and roll. But it's yeah. written from different genres, such as jazz and electronic music. And one of the things uh, I learned from Miles Davis is the importance of the accident. That if you make a mistake, then you should adopt it and make it part of your music. Today in the D- in the DAW generation, again, many musicians, you know, like to have their tracks go through some 
tape saturation plug-in, you know, like the, the J37 the Beatles used in Abbey Road. And, you know, why do they do that? They do that because it sounds better, right? But why, d- why does it sound better? I mean, I don't know, maybe the, the, the way the recording heads are sitting, they're not really stable. Maybe the, the, the plastic tape, um, you know, basically the tape saturation is a situation in which it exceeds the, the tape's ability to record it. And then you, you get this compression and distortion, but in a nonlinear fashion, there is there is an element of a mistake in the tape and in in the in the analog an analog equipment and i think that's at the end of the day what makes it sound better feel Bitches Brew is an album that has a lot of mistakes in it. It's, it's, uh, it's very calculated, but there's also a lot of realism in it, and that's what yeah. I love about it. He, uh, you know, it was interesting, because I once talked to Tony Williams about it, and I said, did Miles ever tell you what to play or how to play? And he says, no. He just let us play. And he says, just play. I have a great story about, about Art Blakey in that sense. Art Blakey, I read, I read an interview with him where he said that um, one day he had a show and his teacher was like, uh, and, and he was really, really anxious going on stage. He said, what if I'm going to go on stage and I won't have any idea because he, he was improvising, right? And his teacher told him, listen, every time you, ha- you don't have an idea and you're, you're anxious, just do a roll on the snare. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then when you see Art Blakey videos <laughs> and you see him do the roll on the snare, yeah. you know, like he doesn't have any idea. And so I don't, many times I don't think it's about like telling them what to do as to just give them like these safe places, you know, where they can go to, or these are the, the techniques that I saw in when I read about a lot of these uh, jazz records. So it's not about telling them what to do, but what to do if they don't have an idea or if they need to fall somewhere. That was John McLaughlin by Miles Davis, which is off the album that Tamar chose to bring to the desert island, Bitches Brew. It's always so hard picking just one song, Greg. I think the whole album makes a great addition to the jukebox. I'm happy with that. Don't you think? Well, that's a great choice. I, although I do prefer McLaughlin on, on um, the uh, Jack Johnson, Miles Davis record. That's, mm. uh, that's a real keeper for me. Uh, we've got a couple more guests adding their picks to the jukebox. Up next, we've got a selection by Leila Kobo, a journalist and vice president at Billboard. So I was going to say two things. I was going to say the second movement of the Beethoven Seventh Symphony, which I think is Mm. beautiful. And since it's so long, then you can like, you know, you can stretch it over your desert island while you wait for someone to rescue you. And then the other one that (laughs) I do love is, um, and, and I don't know if that's the title. I love you, baby. And if it's quite all right. Can't take my eyes off. Can't take take my my eyes off off of you. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would have. But the original version, though, the Frankie Valley version, yes. You're just too good. You know what? I heard it when I first came to the States. Um, I very distinctly remember hearing it. I think when I went to study music in New York, I had not heard it growing up.
So it's one of those songs that I discovered here in the States, along with this is, uh, and I equate them. I, I have them like to me, they're from the same time period. Uh, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons and the Turtles. <laughs> so I think they're all kind of similar, but yeah, I, I, I heard that music when I came here. Can't take my eyes off of you by Frankie Valley. Wasn't expecting that, but no, hey, it was you know, a left turn. Cool, right. Yeah. Uh, what do you got next, Jim? Up next, we have another of our favorite artists, Greg Yola, who's going to give us an unforgettable pick. I'd say go listen to Up Above My Head by Sister Rosetta Tharp and watch what she does with her fingers and her voice and exactly how much overlap there is and then tell me that's easy. You ain't never going to be the same again. (laughs) (laughs) And a message ahead of its time, right? Very much ahead of its time. Like she She was one of these people that was just... You can't believe that she was aware of what she was aware of at the time she was aware of it. And like everything that she spoke on remains true. That was the thing that was freaky actually about doing these songs. I'm like, strange things happening every day. All of it was still true. And she's just speaking on it. I'm like, oh, we really haven't made a lot of progress. Yeah, I know. And we're, we're back to Mavis Staples with Dr. Yeah, King. Right. But at we least really we're are. talking about it in this yeah. case. Hey, that at least good. we're talking about it. You know. It's, that it, makes me happy. It, it's different for me as a black lady. And so that's, it must be different for other people as well. And so that's good. Up above my head. Up above my head. I hear music in the air. I hear music in the air. Now up above my head. Up above my head. That was Yola's choice of Up Above My Head by Sister Rosetta Tharp, one of Yola's inspirations, and she will be playing that great artist in the upcoming Baz Luhrmann movie about Elvis. That's an interesting cameo. Up next, we have none other than R&B producing legend Jimmy Jam, who's going to give us an inspirational pick. Well, for me, I think my go-to song would always be What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. I think it speaks to every time period that it's uh, lasted through. Uh, Its relevance, unfortunately, I guess, in a bittersweet way, is very much, uh, you know, current. You know, you you think it should be a thing of the past, the things that he's talking about. And and actually, I should say not even the song. It would be the the whole album for me. Punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. What's going on? What's going on? And one of the things I, I notice about the record, particularly in this last kind of year of not only the disease of COVID, but the disease of, of racism and, and the other things that we're seeing is that while people are coming out, or there was a lot of records that came out during that period speaking about 
whether it's police violence or, or injustice or whatever it was, were very angry records. And the anger in the music was perfectly fine, perfectly suited. But a lot of times it wasn't what I wanted to hear. Marvin took those same messages of whether it was God or whether it was the ecology or whether it was inner city blues or whatever it was. And it was almost like a calm whisper, like a lullaby. And for that reason, to me, it's the perfect emotional balance. If I'm on a desert island by myself and I need the emotional balance of I need the grit, but I need the soothing, you know, lullaby. You know, I I need to be calm. Even in my anger, I need to be calm about it, you know, because I'm just going to be there for such a long time, obviously. So um, what's going on to me is my favorite album of all time. So I would say that would definitely be my my Desert Island disc. That was What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, a song that is still relevant in its message today in 2021. Absolutely. And if that seemed obvious, well, sometimes in the Desert Island, you want the (laughs) ones that have proven themselves over decades, right? Lastly, we have Miles Copeland, one of the founders of IRS Records, with his additions to the jukebox, because we both know he can't just have one. Uh, The Grandma's House, I consider one of the greatest albums ever, you know, so Wall of Voodoo. The sense of humor. I wish I was in Tijuana, eating barbecued iguana. I take requests on the telephone. I'm on a wavelength far from home. I feel a hot wind. One of the other albums I, I, I think is one of the great albums of all time is Clandestino by Manu Chow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got one song in English. It's got songs in French. It's got songs in Spanish. But the way it's constructed is just brilliant. So I would have to say, if I was on a desert island and I didn't have Grandma's House by Voodoo or Clandestino, <laughs> I would be upset. So it's very hard for me to put my finger on one album, you know, any more than it would be somebody said, well, who's your favorite person in life? Well, you know, that's kind of hard. Solo voy con mi pena, sola va mi condena. Those were Miles's picks of Clandestino by Manu Chow and the album Grandma's House by Wall of Voodoo. Uh, he had to choose one of his own, <laughs> one an IRS artist. Very different from some of our other picks, but still solid. And you know, Greg, we love hearing from our distinguished guests, but hearing from listeners is even better. We want to do this as often as we can. So let's take a listen. New messages. Yeah, hi. So this is Michael in Oregon. Uh, Songs about breaking free. The one that comes to mind is She's Leaving Home by The Beatles. And it's uh, just a poignant song. Here's this young woman, starts out leaving the note that she hoped would say more. She goes down the stairs to the kitchen, clutching her handkerchief, quietly turning the back door key, stepping outside, she is free. And then we get the reaction from her parents. And her parents say, we gave her most of our lives, sacrificed most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. But what's the one thing money can't buy? And that's love. And that's what she's after. So the mom breaks down, cries to her husband, daddy, our baby's gone. Why would she treat us so thoughtlessly? 
how could she do this to me? It just so beautifully portrays the insensitivity of the parents. And this young woman, leaving a note she thought would say more, is gone. Touching song, powerful. I had the greatest English teacher in the world at Kennedy Junior High School, Bob Bumstead. And he told us, we're going to study poetry. And the poetry we're going to study is in this album called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So this was one of the uh, lyrics that we studied. And all of us middle-aged kids related to this in one way or another. We could definitely understand where this girl was coming from. This is Daniel from Louisville, Kentucky. I have a suggestion for next year's Sound Opinions episode featuring songs related to ghosts. That is the 1984 song by the Smiths entitled Suffer Little Children. It talks about five children that were the victims of the Moore's murders. And in the lyrics of the song, they depict the children as haunting the murderers. One of the darkest songs I've ever heard. Thanks a lot. Over the moor, take me to the moor, dig a shallow grave and I'll lay me down. Over the moor, take me to the moor, dig a shallow grave and I'll lay me down. Hi, this is Dan Hickey. I listen to Sound Opinions on WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. I love the Velvet Underground movie. I thought it was fantastic. I think the greatest part of it all was Jonathan Richmond. The Velvets gave us Jonathan, and his commentary was brilliant. I think he's one of the most interesting musical personalities, and I thought his commentary on the band was brilliant. So thank you, Hames. Thank you, Sound Opinions. And thank you, Jonathan. You're all national treasures. They were wild like the USA, a mystery band in a New York way. Rock and roll, but not like the rest. And to me, America at its best. How in the world were they making that sound? Velvet Underground. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Chris calling from Brooklyn. Just wanted to put a plug in for what I think is my favorite song of the year. It's Muna's Silk Chiffon featuring Phoebe Bridgers. Sundown and I'm feeling lifted. Downtown Cherry. I think it's the catchiest chorus that I've heard, Silk Sonic Be Damned. And I just love what they're doing with this song, talking about just being happy with who you are and who you love and that feeling uh, when you're at the beginning of a relationship with someone that you're really excited about. It just captures that so nicely. And sonically, it's really interesting. It starts with this sixpence, none the richer uh, acoustic guitar strumming, and it just continues to build and keep your attention. There's a crunchy electric guitar that comes in when Phoebe Bridgers has her featured verse. And again, just that chorus is so immaculate. It is beautiful. It is catchy. It is going to be so exciting to hear in person at a concert. And so, yeah, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please do. And I'd also love to see them on the show at some point if you would invite them. Anyways, thanks so much and appreciate it. Bye-bye. No more messages. 
Thank you, listeners, for sharing your opinions on our website. If you'd like to give your thoughts about anything that airs on this show or anything else, go to our website, soundopinions.org, and leave us a voice message. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, uh, drum roll, please. Uh, we offer our best albums of 2021. This is always our favorite show of the year. Absolutely. And this week on our bonus podcast, you're going to add a song to our Desert Island Jukebox. Indeed I am. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott.